This time on Sonic Earth Expeditions. The lessons we can learn from the simple act of brewing tea, if we just take the time to pay attention. Hello fellow listeners and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Beth Toole. My guest Wu De joins us to talk about tea, how infusing water with the leaves of Camellia sinensis can be a ritual of reverence and mindfulness, and how it can connect us to our natural environment. Wu De is the Zen name of Aaron Fisher, a philosopher and writer from Ohio, now based in Taiwan, who has dedicated his life to the study of Zen and tea. He's the founder of the Global Tea Hut, a community of tea enthusiasts, and he's the author of the book, The Way of Tea. Though he travels the world teaching tea and Zen philosophy, Wu De does not call himself a tea master. My teacher always said there's no masters in Zen, except for those who have passed away. The rest of us are students of Zen. So I'm always telling my students the same thing. You want to call me tea master, wait till I'm dead. Then you can feel free. Uh, until then, I've, I'm a student and still have to uh, continue learning and working and changing and growing. And uh, with so much work to do, I don't feel like a master of anything. You've been studying this for a long time, and you do have a lot of really great insights. I know that from reading your book. So how did you get your start in, in the path of tea or the way of tea? I was very into uh, Kung Fu and uh, that through that then um, studied Asian philosophy in college and uh, started practicing Buddhism and connected with tea. So tea just kind of is the peripheral to all of the things that I was interested in my whole life. And then it, and then it became what I was interested in eventually. What kind of study does it take to have tea on this level? Well, the magic of tea is that, is that it meets any level, right? So um, it's the second most consumed substance on this planet after water. And so it meets the uh, construction worker and the granny and the, and the monk and the art and the so many, so many levels. And so on the one hand, the answer is like nothing. There's a aspect to tea that requires no training, that's immediately accessible. There's no barrier to entry. Um, and then there are ceremonial aspects of tea that certainly one can improve one's skill, and that's of course endless. You spend a lifetime, and still, as I said, I've been doing this, you know, 25, 30 years. I still feel very much like a beginner. You know, sometimes I enter like a new room in this mansion of tea and it's not like it's not like refining some skill that i already have it's like entering a whole new room that i've n- didn't even know existed uh, just two years for example two years ago i go to a place called wui every year it's one of my favorite places in the world so it's, it's kind of a very important place in the tea world it's where oolong tea comes from 
And you know, I've been going there every year, sometimes a few times a year for, for more than 20 years. And uh, this time, about two years ago I went and boom, like I just encountered this whole dimension of this aspect of this, this type of tea that I had never seen or heard about or, you know, and I said to the farmer there who's uh, been kind of a teacher to me when it comes to that type of tea, you know, how come 20 years I've been coming here, I've never seen this? And he, you know, he's a farmer, so his answer was very simple. He's like, because you never saw it, and <laughs> walked away, kind of, you know. But it wasn't something small, you see. It was like a whole, uh, whole new area of exploration that I didn't even know existed. And so, um, you know, th so there is, a, there is a way where, you know, anybody can enter, and there's a way also where you uh, can develop a lot of skill. But in tea, you know, and in Zen, we try to focus on the removing the distinction between those two points, right? So in Sanskrit, uh, you may know the word for wisdom is prajna, and pra means before and nya is knowledge. And in Zen, we often translate this as the beginner's mind. So there are these proverbs in Japanese, they're called ichikiyomonos. They're like one-liners, and they're often painted in calligraphy and they're used in all kinds of settings but they're also used in tea rooms and there's a famous one that is often hung when we drink tea and it says yi dao shi dao yi which means one to ten to one and the essence of it is that as you advance up to ten now you just go back down to one you just return to the basics so there's nowhere to get to there's no like point of graduation or um, and the beginner's mind is is also uh, beautiful because it is uh, receptive and humble and open. So e even as we advance, you know, it's almost a, just a deepening of the I don't know spirit, as opposed to a, like a filling up of the of the bowl. Tea is leaves with hot water, right? So you, what you do is take something very ordinary and would you call it an art form? Would you say you elevate it? Would you say it's the art of con contemplation? How would you describe your approach to tea? Mm, certainly art and ceremony. And you highlighted something really important, which is that uh, the ceremonialization of tea or anything is often misconstrued to mean like adding something onto it like you know why are you making a tempest in a teacup kind of would be the criticism right like we're adding something why not just drink tea but that's a misunderstanding of at least my interpretation of ceremony and its focus 
because it isn't about going from the ordinary to the extraordinary, but rather seeing the extraordinary in the ordinary. So it's just a, a deeper appreciation of something very, very ordinary. We have a Zen saying, it's a little bit convoluted, like a lot of Zen sayings, but if you think about it, it's actually quite beautiful and profound. It's that seeing the extraordinary as extraordinary is ordinary. Seeing the ordinary as extraordinary is actually extraordinary. So in other words, everybody sees the extraordinary as extraordinary. That's ordinary. But only few people, it's uncommon, in other words, to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. And this is what a lot of what T teaches us, that we don't have to go elsewhere for the magic. This moment contains all, all the miracles that you could possibly desire. The miracle of the fact that we're on a giant blue ball flying through space at thousands of kilometers an hour, it's filled with fire. The miracle of how many chance movements had to happen, both small and large, for you and I to be able to sit here. You know, like for example, some, a lot of people know about the mass extinction of the dinosaurs, but a lot of people don't know that long before the dinosaurs, actually there was an even bigger mass extinction. The, the scientists call it the Great Dying. It's not a very creative name, but the Great Dying. And in that time, the, it, it's, I think it's like, I don't remember if it's 96 or 98% of a species on the planet died. It's a, like barely anything survived. And had those, we're all descended from those things that did survive. So you have big cosmic events like that. But then you also have like little chance things like um, that my grandfather was a sailor and my grandmother was a nurse and that they happened to be in a certain spot on a certain day and you know meet each other and so on and so on. So all these uh, miracles are all wrapped into this ordinary moment if you but look. And so the ceremonialization of something ordinary isn't about making a tempest in a teacup. It's not about adding something to tea to which somebody could criticize, hey, why are you doing that? Why not just enjoy your tea? But it's about remembering that the ordinary is also special. So that my life doesn't become these like special snapshots in an album with a bunch of like static snow from those old timey TVs between those snapshots. We have this curious ability to take life for granted, to forget. At least I do. I shouldn't project that onto anyone else. Um, and for that reason also, I'm not in any way opposed to tea in any of its forms. So I don't think I'm cool because I practice tea ceremonially. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I'm uncool. Maybe I'm a little bit dumb. And so I need that extra reminder to live more healthy, in, or at least in the way I would like to. But I, it's not like I think tea is a beverage or it's a ceremony. Let's erase that or scribble it out and put a nice healthy and. It can be both. And those who drink it as a beverage, good for you, it's wonderful. Those who drink it as a hobby, 
or an art form, also wonderful. And I can meet any of those people. And then, you know, I tend to focus more of it on it as a ceremony. But I also drink it in those ways. I still do drink tea as a beverage. I still do drink tea as a hobby. My message to those people is that I would like to connect with those people. First. I mean, other than just let's be buddies and I'm also a tea geek and we can talk about teapots and, and all the like hobby stuff. But the only important message that I have for the people that drink tea as a beverage or as a hobby is that no matter what reason you love this leaf, as a beverage, as a hobby, as something spiritual, for whatever reason you love this leaf, please awaken to the realization that you can't love a leaf without loving the forest. And that our beverages and our hobbies should not come at the expense of, of the environment, of the health of farmers, of our own health. So if it's a beverage, we want a healthy beverage. If it's a hobby, we don't want our hobby to have a negative impact on the lives and environment of this planet. So together we can promote more sustainable agriculture and we can understand that actually the health of the forest is the health of the leaf. And so the best quality teas are also the ones that are grown in environments that are healthy. Of course they are. The leaf does not come out of the tree ex nihilo. It, it is not coming from, through an extra dimensional portal. The leaf is, in a poetic way of putting it, the leaf is the tree's expression of its relationship to its environment. In other words, it gathers resources from its environment and creates that leaf. So if its relationship to its environment is unhealthy or its environment is unhealthy, then it will take unhealthy substances and create that leaf. And so that's not good for us. It's also not good for the farmers who have to be around all those chemicals and, and negative things and it impacts their lives in a really negative way. The World Health Organization, um, their statistics change, but they suggest somewhere like 200,000 some humans die a year from pesticide exposure. So a huge amount of money, amount of, uh, money and, and uh, resources spent on this... Uh, problem and also the impact the impact of suffering so I, we don't need to go too far on that tangent but that's the only like serious message i have for people that drink tea as a beverage or a hobby other than and then there's also the more casual message of like yeah it's a beverage to me too let's talk about green tea white tea let's geek out on teapots let's you know but ceremony for me is is uh, um you know to use the traditional chinese kind of approach to ceremony they call ceremony li and the, the rituals, the idea is that um, the rituals fulfill several functions, but one of them being that they take abstract philosophy or abstract virtue and help us to embody it. So that the idea is that the ritual itself contains virtue and that the repeated practicing of it makes that virtue come along for the ride. So as you uh, make a habit of doing the ceremony, the virtue inherent in the ceremony comes along for the ride. And whether you know it or not, you start to embody that virtue as second nature, just like you start to embody the method of the ceremony as second nature. And um, it's also a way of actualizing mythology. I mean, mythology is also just like abstract stories that help us to relate to the cosmos but often work during the telling of them in that way. But, you know, how to live that in your ordinary life, this, this is where the rituals connect us. You know, this is why rituals were also, you know, often related to those myths. And then finally, ritual also helps to create harmony with nature. 
So they were done at solstice at times when, you know, it's, it helps to connect us to nature. So the idea is that through ceremony, through ritual, um, one can cultivate integrity and harmony. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what you get from focusing in this way, but uh, it sounds like everything. Hmm. Well, that's, ha- that's the one half. Then there's the other half, um, which is where like the method doesn't matter and it's more just about you could say quiet contemplation or um, a meditative mind and that is um, you know there's many ways of talking about that that's something though that has been central to all of the at least Chinese traditions um, Buddhism, Taoism and Confucianism especially Neo-Confucianism in Neo-Confucianism they would call it Gobu which is like investigating for yourself it's a kind of empiricism but not the empiricism of science which is um, which is observing nature in order to reduce it to its mechanistic laws Um, and there's nothing wrong with that form of empiricism it's obviously a wonderful form of empiricism and resulted in you and I being able to have this technology to talk from far away that form of empiricism is also beautiful but the more Taoist Confucian form of empiricism is more um, the idea of observing natural patterns um, with an implicit belief that the way humans should be living should be in harmony with nature. In other words, that nature has within it the, the moral patterns, the spiritual patterns, and the natural patterns that we can use to design our life and our society. And that if we do so, our lives and our society will be healthy. So by observing oneself, that's the meditative, more Zen approach, inward, or even observing nature outward, we can um, find all the truth that we need. We don't need a book or a teacher, right? So this is why you know, my teacher often said, tea is not something you learn from a book or a teacher, it's in your heart. So there's an aspect of tea that is also goes this road, which is just that... Um, T's pattern, T's natural pattern, T's Tao, is that it relaxes us. It doesn't just do that to me, it does that to most all humans, right? Relaxes us. And when we're relaxed and our mind quiets down, listening is easier. So one of the like, you know, slogans I say often is that nature is always speaking and T helps us to understand what she's saying. So T's pattern is to slow us down to quiet our minds, and uh, when we do that, we're able to hear more, we're able to uh, listen more, and when we listen more, we, um, you know, we can learn everything we need to learn from, from nature around us, right? The idea being that no, no matter how powerful the wisdom that a human being can express in words, there's no human wisdom on this planet that's as old as the mountains. There's no chant as holy as the light of the stars there's no you see so nature is teaching everything that we need if we just listen and so if you look at these two aspects of tea one one is requires no method it's just the fact that tea is calming allows us to to listen and the ceremony which is a ritual that you can practice and certainly improve upon you you have inherent in them two of what i would for myself consider to be the most fundamental uh, spiritual qualities, 
or skills or attributes, which is listening and honoring. I feel like if you can learn in your life to listen, and not just with your ears, but with your whole being, I mean to listen, to really listen, but even also listen. Emerson said it took me five years to learn to speak English and 50 to learn to hear it. Right, so listening even to language, but listening you know, to nature, to yourself, to your own heart, to your intuition. If you can listen and you can also honor, uh, I think you're like 90% there in terms of like spiritual well-being. So then, is tea uh, listening meditation? Is it a sonic meditation? Because I find for myself that it is. I hear the boiling water, the sound, one of my favorite sounds is the lid going back onto the teapot, you know, the water pouring. How, how is that for you? And, and what does listening to tea do? Mm, certainly, uh, tea lovers you're not you're not alone in that um tea lovers since ancient times have celebrated in poetry and um and prose a love of the tinkling of teaware and a love of the uh boiling of the water the boiling of water in traditional uh chinese poetry and was thought to sound, because they often use metal kettles, so they thought the boiling of water sounded like uh, the wind sowing the pines. So the boiling of a kettle, they said, was like the wind sowing the pines. Tinkling of teaware was sometimes compared poetically to the bells of a different, distant monastery. Um, so that all those sounds are, certainly tea is happening on all senses. Um, I think, though, listening is, um, certainly the ears are amongst if not the most powerful of our senses in terms of uh, meditation but i think also listening is uh, a very powerful metaphor because there's a way where you can there's there's almost a it's the you can listen with all in buddhism we have six senses so the mind is included as a sense because there are impressions in the mind that have nothing to do with the five senses like right now, you can think of a purple unicorn with a rainbow horn. And that really doesn't, you know. So the, the mind has is kind of considered its own sense. You don't have to do that. That's just a categorization that happens in Buddhism. But you can see how you can, li like, there's a way of looking that is like a listening type of looking, which would just mean like paying more attention, noticing details with your eyes. There's a way of smelling that is listening. Um, which is, you know, to really smell and take it in deeply, notice subtleties, etc. So listening metaphorically applies to all the senses. And uh, there certainly are meditations that, that also use the ears and use sounds to, um, to, to cultivate heightened awareness or calmness. And uh, tea involves all the senses. And so there's not a sense that isn't used to appreciate tea. And tea lovers for centuries have, have heralded and 
poetically, etc. The the sounds of tea, of tinkling teaware, boiling water, etc. Not only that, um, there's a long love affair between music and tea. So music also was uh, often accompanied tea drinking, especially certain types of of music. And to this day, it's not um, it's not all the time, but like you know, this is my tea room right here. There's a stereo. And sometimes tea is in quiet, sometimes this is on, and uh, there's music that goes with tea as well. It's, it can be wonderful. What about um, slurping? <laughs> slurping, too. What a wonderful sound. There's such humanity in the sound of slurping. Yeah, there is. Uh, the, um, and in Japan, I don't know if you know this, but if you're eating at someone's home, and you don't slurp, it actually means you don't like the food. So it's, it's rude to not slurp. How about with tea? Yeah, I, th I, I don't have any problem. I've actually seen um, calligraphy on, the, on a sign at a tea house one time in China that said, like, well, you know, welcome slurping. There's two uh, kinds of slurping, as if, if we want to get technical. Uh, there's two types of slurping. So one would, is just the natural uh, is a natural reaction to hot beverage going into our mouth. And there's another, if you're holding the bowl, uh, you're not tilting the bowl and letting gravity bring the tea into your mouth, you're like sucking it up, kind of. And that one's, um, I would avoid just because it will make the tea rough. It'll, like, you're, um, you're unnecessarily breaking it apart. But I'm not saying that because the sound is unpleasant, it's just more that like it's unnecessary. You can tilt your cup towards you and let gravity bring it into your mouth. But even doing that, you will still slurp. It's just a slurp, not of sucking. It's a slurp of uh, reacting to hot beverage. And it's actually nice, especially when you're in a ceremony and everybody's silent and you have like 15 people and then it's the whole room. It's kind of like frogs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like frogs, I love that. You wrote in your book, and I really love this, that there's a, a quiet pervading the entire universe. Could you elaborate on, more on that? Yeah, so the, I think it helps to um, just semantically distinguish between quiet in terms of the absence of noise and, and internal stillness. So, and that's just semantic, but it helps, I think, to kind of decipher what could be otherwise be obtruse. So, um, external quiet can be very helpful to remind us of the stillness that's inside of us and inside of all things, and is actually the essence of, of, um, of peace. We tend to think that peace is something you have to do because we regard all things as something you have to do. It's a dysfunction of our mind. But actually, peace is what happens when you stop doing. When, you know, it, it takes no energy to make peace. 
it takes energy to make noise. It takes terawatts of energy to make noisy New York City. You shut it off and it goes back to what it was, which is the confluence of some rivers and forest and it's quiet. But that quiet isn't about, it's not about, when people go into the forest, they say, wow, it's quiet and peaceful here. But they don't, they're not talking about the absence of sound. There, because there are birds, there are, you know, maybe monkeys, all kinds of sounds. But somehow those sounds are like in harmony. And another, another way of looking at this also is standing back. If you uh, watch interviews or listen to interviews with um, astronauts, they, they'll tell you like, you know, one of the f deepest and most powerful aspects of going into space is looking down on the earth and how peaceful and how quiet it is. So, you know, gone are those billions of people and their drama. It's just this beautiful blue ball sp spinning free. So, and then, obviously, even bigger picture, around this world, there's infinite light years of space that is all silent and still. So, stillness is inherent in, in even motion. It's inherent in every, um, it's the space between things. And external quietude can help to remind us of that. But the ideal is that we connect to that and not be dependent on external quietude. Because if your peace is dependent on external quietude, even if you go to a monastery these days in the mountains, a plane's gonna fly yeah. over your head one Tuesday and gone is your, your peace of mind. So it's more about switching perspective. Right. So the external quietude, though, can be helpful because it reminds us of that stillness. It, it like, once that some of the noise shuts off, that helps some of the noise in our mind to shut off, and we remember that, hey, there's this deep well of, of stillness and quiet inside of me, and it actually pervades all things, that all things are a balance of push and pull, of movement and stillness, of form and formlessness, and so um, we connect to that stillness then even in motion even in noise we can attain a we can retain a connection to the quiet that's inside of us and um, that will also result in more skillful speech and action and tea drinking tea can help with this yeah well see the the that's the you know i think Tea has been used in con contemplative tr way and even a transcendental way for so many centuries. Um, sometimes, you know, for a Western person, because in some places in the West, even though tea's been around for a few hundred years, it's only ever been a beverage. And so it can be a little bit exotic for a Western person to realize that in China there are thousands of years of deep ceremony, heritage, spirituality, morality, um, and etc. you know, that have surrounded this plant. So, but because it relaxes us, while at the same time keeping us awake, there's real power in that. In fact, you know, I am also teaching meditation, and I've been teaching meditation for decades, and if you were to ask me now to 
describe the meditative mind in as few words as possible. The best I could do, and words are, of course, paltry in trying to explain a psychological state, but the best I could do would be to say calm and awake. This is the meditative mind, calm and awake. And this is very much what tea does for us. It calms us, but also keeps us awake. So we're aware, but we're calm. And that's its Tao, that's its pattern. That's its natural pattern. It, it calms us down, it slows us down. And the moment we calm down and slow down, like water, to use water as a metaphor, when you have water that's turbid, and you want it to clear, you put it at rest. And the moment you put it at rest, the water begins to separate from that which it's not. That which it's not starts to sink and it starts to clarify immediately. And we're like that too. The moment you put us at rest internally and externally, more importantly internally, uh, what we're, the what's not us starts to settle. And what's left is listening. And this, it's al almost in a way from an evolutionary perspective, it's, um, it's very interesting that we even have to talk about this. Our ancestors didn't because their senses were always awake, right? And, and that's, that, go, that extends back before Homo sapiens. Like you watch animals in the wild, they're always awake. You have to be. You have to be able to smell the mushroom and to the best of your ability, distinguish if this is the kind you can eat or not. And then while you're eating it, you have to listen because there's predators around. And so there's, the senses are always on. And in order for that system to function at all, there has to be, the, there has to be at the center of it stillness. It, because you, you can't be full and also receive, right? So that's, the, that's again, just another way of talking about this metaphor of listening which is that you can't, you can't receive anything when you're not listening. And receptivity is wisdom. We talked about this at the very beginning of our conversation. Prajna, beginner's mind, receptivity, openness, right? The I know, I know mind or the mind of like I'm the authority, that mind is not, uh, re not, the, not receptive and um, therefore not... Um, won't develop, cultivate wisdom because it's not listening. So the mind that is, that is listening has to be empty. If there's a, you can't listen when there's a stereo blazing, in other words. You can't listen when there's a stereo blazing in your head of voices and all kinds of stuff. And uh, humans, we have that propensity to get full. And so we need to balance that with times of getting empty like the bowl. We, we need to fill and be emptied and fill and be emptied. So that's just tease, um, that's just, it's, that's just the nature of this plant. That's its power. In Chinese power, the, we translate de is like virtue, but it's not virtue necessarily in terms of like morality, though it can be because they attribute, again, I said this earlier, morality to be something natural that we could learn from nature. But virtue as in like the virtue of peppermint is to freshen your bath. Like its power, its essence, right? So the, 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 the essence of this plant, what it does is relax human beings. It calms us down. It clears the spirit and the mind and the eyes. It just does that. That's not, yeah. 
you know, that's just like spearmint freshens the breath. It's just an inherent quality that this plant, when you consume it, calms you down and yet keeps you awake. So you're like aware and alert, but also relaxed and slow. And that's a, that's a really good state to be in because you're, you're able then, as I said, to practice that gobu, that listening to nature, that, um, because that, the first kind of, the first kind of aspect of listening, the first kind of skill that one must develop is the ability to distinguish between natural desire, uh, uh, natural patterns and human desire. The, the ability to know what you're listening to. Are you listening to, a, to nature or are you listening to your own stuff? Right? That distinction is the first kind of necessary distinction in the art of listening is to be able to um, kind of learn to hear the difference between the, the, the voice of things, the voice of the Tao and the voice of my stuff. We're so used to listening to our own stuff. Right, and that's why we often feel so separate. We're so used to being claustrophobically um, surrounded by the voices in our own self, and not listening really to the outside. And when we when we learn that, we you also establish you know what is essentially wisdom in another aspect of wisdom in Buddhism, which is the realization of oneness of connection between the inside and the outside that they're actually not separate. When you are listening to tea, when you are experiencing tea, do you have a sense of the plant itself and the ground where it came from and the rain and the sky and, and all of the things? Sometimes. Certainly. I mean, in Buddhism we call that interbeing. And it's, that's very real. I mean, the water you're drinking now can't, was in a cloud less than two weeks ago. This tea it has in it the mountains and the sun. That's amazing, like the plants photosynthesize sunlight and then we consume that energy. Like all things are in it, certainly. Um, but this is a subtle point. We, we say, there's an old Chinese saying, tea brings nature to society. So tea has always reminded those of us who are want to forget of our connection to nature, right? Because through drinking tea, you are like, you know, even just if you're into tea as a hobby, the difference between this year's tea and last year's tea is the weather. You're drinking the weather, right? So this is why I said earlier also, like the, the environment is the tea. We call that terroir, right? The, the environment is the tea, so you can't, how do you love a leaf without loving the forest? So, um, that all is certainly there, but when we say that tea contains the essence of nature, which, you know, there's one, there's a cheeky tea master in the constellation of tea masters in the past, um, who, again, I said after people pass away, we can call them that, their learning is done, right? So one of the big ones is named Bai Sao, and he was also a Zen monk, so he's like many Zen monks, kind of cheeky. And uh, he said uh, in one of his poems, tea contains the essence of nature. It's too bad they just prattle on about its color and flavor. So he was saying like people just talking about what it does to me 
they're missing an opportunity. He was being it in a, in a cheeky kind of way of poking people that um, not meant to put them down or be condescending, but meant to lift them up. And, but if you actually step back and think about it, tea doesn't contain the essence of nature any more than the sound of the rain or than the flowers right here next to me or than the cabbage that I eat for lunch, right? True. So why take, you know, why this plant? Right, and there, there's a lot of answers, but um, you know, one is because one might be personal because I love it. We have a saying, in, a saying in Zen, which is, "I asked the radish farmer for directions, and he pointed the way with a radish." Why did he point away with a radish? Well, the obvious answer is because he's a radish farmer, right? So I'm a tea person, so of course I, I point the way with tea. If I was a singer, I would sing to you. If I was a poet, I would write poems, but. I'm a tea person, so I use tea. But the, the other answer is, is uh, subtle, but also apparent and obvious. Because tea relaxes human beings while keeping them awake, when we drink it, we naturally hear nature eat more easily. So I think the simplest way of thinking about this is that the ancients said that tea contains the essence of nature because it empowers us to remember the essence of nature and because it does that as an inherent virtue right it when you drink tea you relax you slow down isn't that your experience yeah 100% it's, cer it's certainly my experience it's like thought, you know so many people all over the world like it's just it's a, it's what this plant does and so because this plant slows us down quiets us down when we slow down and quiet down we can touch the essence of nature inside of us and then touch it outside of us. And so this plant facilitates the remembering of that truth. And so I think that's what's meant by tea has the essence of nature within it, is that not that it has more nature in it than another plant, but that, that its effect on human beings is to allow us the uh, quietude and space to remember our connection to nature because it's if you say reconnect to nature or something you're it's i mean you could put it that way but it's a little bit off because you were never disconnected right animals like it's not like a bear is like oh dude i, I have to go out and get out in nature i've had a stressful week right <laughs> right so it's not like a bear is like uh, you know, when you turn on the nature channel, there's the bear. The bear is nature, and, and so are you. There's not an extra-dimensional bubble you pass through when you come into a city uh, that nature is not there. Nature, you know, water, wind, sun, minerals, all of that is in your body and is essential for your survival. And so it's not about connecting. It's about remembering. And that actually is the most that's the that's the most essential thing i think of you know, that's a big part of why i'm on your podcast right now and why i'm actively um instead of like retreating to a mountain hermitage and just living out my life peacefully without any of the you know both joy and drama that ensues when you step out into the world and start speaking some of course no matter what you say some people like it and some people don't and then 
yeah, and then you you get embroiled in stuff. But you know why I'm actively doing that, and and is because I be, I feel like that remembering is the medicine that can help us heal this world. Because as a philosophy, as a collection of ideas, environmentalism won't work for a few reasons. First of all, as a collection of ideas, even though it makes perfect rational sense, it will have to also compete with all kinds of unconscious feelings like greed. And, and also, you know, one of the, one of the modern myths is that facts, scientists especially, are susceptible to this, um, to this belief, which is that facts will uh, change people's minds. And it's actually not true. They can look at facts and walk in the other direction. I mean, as any, you know, observation of humanity will prove, like it doesn't matter what the facts are if they have some kind of bias or feeling underneath, right? So mm -hmm. just like you don't need to, there doesn't need to be a philosophy for you to protect your child. You protect your child instinctually, automatically, because she's a part of you, he's a part of you. You protect your beloved immediately, viscerally. There's no need for any philosophy, any thought. And so when one remembers that the environment is uh, me, that, that my child, their body is 50 to 70% water. And so what anyone does to the water, they literally do to my child's body. And when we remember that in that same visceral way, there's no need to like disgust or intellectualize a need to be in harmony with nature there's because nature is us the second the second aspect to this is a little bit deeper the second reason that i think this experience is so important to healing the world is that something that human beings have fundamentally forgotten is that the way that we heal the world right we're so anthropocentric that we think that the solution is us. So we think that we fix the parking lot by doing something, that we fix the problems we caused in nature, we can fix them with more technology, more, right? When what we need to do is reestablish in our hearts a respect for nature. And when you respect nature, like all of our ancestors, you leave it its own space. So most Aboriginal societies all over the world, they had the human realm, the village, and then they have a kind of like demilitarized zone, neutral zone, where the humans go and nature. And then outside of that, you have the wild. And it's taboo to go in the wild. Like not even for like Sunday walks to go out and enjoy nature, because you realize when we go into that park, even our breath changes things. And our movements scatter the animals and like mess things up. And our minds, if they've just, if we're looking at cell phones and bringing all that energy in there, we're also impacting that. We need to just leave it alone. If you have a parking lot that you want to be a forest, you don't fix it by doing something. You fix it by doing nothing. You leave it alone and it will turn into a forest. So this is a big part of what meditation and ceremony also teach. That listening that we talked about is also just about learning to respect space learning to surrender the impulse to do, like intentionally surrender the impulse to do. 
There's a Zen master that said very famously that all of humanity's problems, individual and societal, and I would say even at the level of species, all of our problems boil down to our inability to sit and do nothing. So tea is very much good for nothing. It's a waste of time. It's not productive. If you tell your very ambitious friend that you spent the afternoon drinking tea, they'll say, what a waste of time. It certainly is, it's, but if you do it consciously, if you're in, that's where the ceremony comes back in for me. You could just sit and waste time, that's fine too. In Chinese, that's called wang, which means sitting and forgetting. It's a good practice. But if you're a little bit more awake and conscious as well, it's like you intentionally surrender the impulse to do. So you're intentionally doing nothing, and that teaches a reverence for space. And actually in Zen and uh, the traditions that I practice, we try to live space first. Thank you to my guest, Wu De, founder of the Global Tea Hut, which is at globalteahut.org. It's a great resource where you can find tea and teaware and courses on serving tea in different styles. They have a magazine subscription that comes with different tea every month, and it all benefits a tea center they're building where they plan to hold donation-based classes in the future. That's globalteahut.org. This podcast is handcrafted. I edit and mix, and I also compose and perform the incidental music. If you'd like to hear more of the music, I publish on major platforms as Cosmic Piano. You can also purchase the music and some field recordings at my Bandcamp site. That's cosmicpiano.bandcamp.com. One of the pieces from this episode is called The Tea Garden, and you can also find that track on the Insight Timer app. You've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. I'm Mary Beth Toole. Thanks, and until next time, better living through listening. Happy trails. <laughs>